Good morning. morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Common Reason Bible Study. My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Tim this morning. Uh, I want to say good day, mate, to him and Christy down under. They are in the middle of their Australia tour. I wish them well. Uh, I want to thank you guys for joining me. It looks like we have a full room, but we're only showing half of the room because the other half's empty. So graduation weekend here at Southern Adventist University. It's also Mother's Day weekend, and it's also uh, just a gorgeous spring day. So I want to thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I want to encourage those online to um, ask lots of questions because that's how we fill the hour when I'm teaching. <laughs> lots, of, uh, lots of feedback is what uh, I need. And I want to welcome those who are online, and then we, I, we see some familiar faces uh, in the audience today. I want to welcome them back as well, as well as the, as long, along with the, the regulars. So I'm going to start uh, with prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for a beautiful Sabbath day that you've graced us with. Thank you for your blessings and the light that you've given us. Thank you for the comforter, the spirit of love and truth. I ask that uh, your spirit be here today as we look at some of the uh, interesting parables and interesting uh, miracles that uh, made up uh, your son's life on this earth. Please bless Tim and Christy and their endeavors in Australia. Uh, Continue to unfold greater light to us. Be with this class corporately and individually. That's the things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're studying lesson eight in our quarterly of Luke. Uh, the lesson is entitled "The Mission of Jesus." Just before we even get into the lesson, when you see the title "The Mission of Jesus," what comes to mind? Salvation. Okay. What salvation? What does salvation mean? Expand on that. Because I'm going to read a couple. I I Google search Jesus' mission, and the first two. I'm going to read the first two entries that came up. Salvation means different things to different uh, sects of Christianity. So what what? What do we think salvation means? I now think it means healing, transformation, victory. Okay, healing, transformation of character, victory. What's conventionally thought that salvation means? Go to heaven. Pardon. Go to heaven. Go to heaven. <laughs> that means salvation. Go to heaven. Pardon. Penalty being paid. Blood payment. Stamp of blood payment. Um, the memory text, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So salvation could be part of that saving component. Sums it up. Is this an adequate mission statement? The lesson suggests this is a, a perfect encapsulation of, uh, of Christ's mission statement. But is there anything more? John 17.3 would say that that's not... Okay, John seventeen three. This is life eternal that thou may know that you may know the only true God in Jesus Christ. Thou hast, thou hast sent. Um, What's well, another text in John? Might be in seventeen. It says, "I finished the work you gave me to do." Okay, 
I've made you known. So, can we agree that a big, a big part of Christ's mission was to fully reveal the character and in uh, uh, unity of His Father? Um, is that it? No. Okay. What else was necessary? His mission was to fix the disease that Adam infected the human race with. Okay, so he had to secure a remedy to eradicate the sinful nature, the the terminal condition, the infection uh, that had uh, infected Adam, <clears throat> excuse me, Adam's descendants, since he and Eve believed the lies that Satan told them in the garden. Yes? To reveal also how far Satan would go, what he would do. Okay, good. Excellent. Yes, he, he needed to reveal Satan's character as well. Or he needed to allow Satan to reveal his character. Because up until Calvary, up until it is finished, uh, heavenly beings still had some questions. At the, the moment Christ laid down his life and gave up his spirit, their questions were answered. It was, it was then that their eyes were fully opened. It was revealed to them, oh, this is the nature of Satan's government. He would kill God himself in order to advance his own agenda. Yes. And uh, this might have been uh, included when you mentioned character, but to reveal what God's love was really like, that it wasn't what man had come to think it meant. Right. Oh, exactly. I mean, since God is love, personified, God is, is love. Scripture doesn't say God is power. Although he is all powerful, it doesn't say he is forgiveness, even though he's all forgiving. It doesn't say he is knowledge, because he is all knowledgeable. What scripture define what scripture defines God is is God is love. It doesn't say God is law. Does, it doesn't say God is law. <laughs> and it doesn't say God is loving. That's right. It says God is love. It's a big difference. Okay, seven second Timothy one ten. What does that say? This gives us some indications to what God's mission was. Well, that's being looked up. Someone look up Hebrews two fourteen and someone else first John three eight. These are familiar texts to us in this class, or they should be. Who's got second uh, Timothy one ten? But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life. Okay. So, part of his mission was to destroy death. We just mentioned from John seventeen three Christ's statement in his prayer for his disciples, this is life eternal that thou may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If knowing, and if, if a correct knowledge of God is life eternal, then what must death be? Incorrect knowledge of Satan. Yeah, not knowing or incorrect knowledge. Not knowing God, or knowing a false God. Okay? 
He came to destroy death. This is not the death that you and I know. This is not the sleep that we, the humans, define as death. What Paul's talking about here in 2 Timothy is permanent, eternal death, non-existence. He came to destroy death. All right, good. Hebrews 2.14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay, so now we have some insight as to what death is. What's the power of death? Anything that keeps us from knowing God, which is life. Okay, so the belief in the lies that Satan has told about God's character, the effort Satan has made to imprint his own character onto our God belief, this is the power of death. Just a question in the back. Shout it out. We have a couple of comments going on here Okay. in the stream. Uh, first one is, Jesus' mission was to reveal the character of God without the power, and Satan ended up murdering him, revealing both the character of God and the character of Satan. Next comment. Satan didn't and couldn't murder Jesus. Jesus gave his life. Next comment. He committed suicide? Question. Uh, and he sacrificed himself to those who couldn't save themselves. Okay. Um, read the first comment again. Um, Jesus' mission was to reveal the character of God without the power. And Satan ended up murdering him, revealing both the character of God and the character of Satan. Okay, I, I would actually take issue with the... the the assertion that he came to reveal the character of God without the power. What? What is? What really is God's power? Is it the is it the power to speak a world into existence or to kneel down and mold uh, humanity in His likeness? Is that really God's power? No, it's a demonstration. It's certainly an evidence of power. It's an evidence of a power that. I don't. I can't comprehend. But is that really God's power? His power, His power is to give. His power is to love unconditionally. Yes. I think he may have meant he came and revealed his uh, human side, and was his human side did all this, and and that's the way this man stated it, perhaps. I mean, he, yeah. he received power, the same power we can, but he didn't really come as as the other side of him here, the divine side, and, and do magical things. No, certainly yeah. he didn't. Okay. Uh, and and you know, to to the rest of that uh, rest of that conversation, yes, I I, I am convinced one hundred percent that no one, no no human being. No created being could take Christ's life. He gave it up. And to to refer to it as suicide uh, has typically some negative uh, implications. However, anyone who's fought in combat and and has seen some of the selfless acts done by soldiers 
falling and when a grenade rolls into a tent and a soldier leaps on that grenade and covers the grenade knowing full well that his life is going to be terminated but he does so to save the 10 comrades in the surrounding him in the tent the soldier has quote committed suicide but he's but he's not what's that no one calls it that that's right they don't or okay let's let's say let's say someone a soldier the volunteers for a suicide mission where the commander says we need this to happen the chances of you of you making it out alive are, are virtually nil. And Soul says, I'll, I'll do it because it's going to save lives. He voluntarily did it. He does clarify God's power is the ability to create life. <laughs> okay. Yes, we do have that power. We can, we can create the beings in our own image. Dale? Just a couple of comments or a couple of thoughts regarding his question about the murdering of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I believe that Satan did murder the body of Jesus. But Christ, I've drawn a distinction here between Jesus and Christ, the God-man. Christ, the divinity, laid its life down, as it were, experiencing the second death. Because God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to Himself. The physical death of Jesus did not reconcile the world to Himself. It's God in some mysterious way for sacrificing Himself. Now, I know divinity can't die, but I'm talking about I'm talking about the divinity experiencing the second death that I believe is what Jesus experienced in its death. Okay. Okay, this this is a can of worms here, <laughs> and thank you for opening it. <clears throat> um, wh what does Scripture define as the second death? <laughs> Scripture is actually a little more specific as to what the second death is. We can read it in Revelations. It says the lake of fire. This is the second death. And some have some have tried to equate Christ's experience uh, on the cross with the with the experience of the wicked in the very end, where where God either imposes His punishment. So there, there are some who believe that God literally killed His His Son on the cross, and God's going to do the same thing to the wicked. And therefore, the experiences are are the same. Or. There are some who believe that God restrained himself and gave Christ up to his own choices at the cross. Restrained, God restrained himself from saving his own son. And this is the same thing that's going to happen in the wicked in the end. However, let's look at the perspective. Let's look at some of the differences between Christ on the cross and the wicked in the end. When Christ is on the cross, was he, was he afraid of his father? No. Okay. Scripture tells us that the wicked in the end are going to be begging for the rocks and the trees to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the one who sits on the throne. Okay, the wicked are going to be terrified of Christ and the Father. Okay, so that's a fundamental difference between the two. Christ died with complete, implicit trust in his Father. 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. The wicked are completely distrustful of God, which is why they want, which is why they're wanting to run in the caves, why they want the rocks and trees to fall on them. They don't trust that God is looking out for their best interest. They have trusted, they've believed the lie. They believe the lie that Eve believed in Satan, that God's not really looking out for your best interest. You should eat the tree, eat through the tree, because it's, it's going to open your eyes. And that, that's just too fundamentally different. You, we can come up with more. So the experience that Christ experienced on the cross is significantly different from the second death that the wicked experienced in the end, in my opinion. Now, he went through he went through this battle in the Garden of Gethsemane, this, this battle between the two antagonistic principles, between his human brain saying, I don't want to do this, Lord, yet not my will but thy will being done. This wrestling uh, and this agony in the Garden is, is often, I believe, uh, people will say that's synonymous with the second death. But again, they, the wicked don't go through this wrestling. They have, they have completely, they've given themselves over to the, not your will, my will. I don't want to do this. And they've done that to the point where they've completely seared their conscience and terminated any, any um, communication from the Holy Spirit from, from being able to even uh, hear it or, or, uh, uh, or understand it. So there, there, there are some fundamental issues between comparing Christ's experience with the second death. I think they're, I think they're very different, and frankly, I think Christ's experience is more difficult because he didn't give in to his will. You got a comment? Um, yeah, just, uh, I'm not disagreeing, but I'm just trying to understand it in the light of, let's say, the uh, children of Israel going through the wilderness. They went through the same experience, but depending on their relation with God, they reacted differently. So I'm just trying to use that as an example to object into uh, what you're trying to explain to understand, you know, is it that they're going through a different experience or they have a different relationship with God? Uh, I'm having a tough time following what, what the children of Israel... Um, so they were all the, this... offering no food, no water. Um, they all went through the same experience, the desert experience, but some of them still had a worshipful and trustful spirit with God. So it wasn't the experience that they went through, it was their, their heart condition as they went through the experience. Well, um, I, I don't think they ever went hungry. They, they, they had plenty of manna, but they demanded meat. They wanted meat, which God knew wasn't in their best interest, but he finally said, okay. I'm going to give you what you've asked for. Here come the quail. And what they do? They gorge themselves on quail. And, and the natural consequences of the gluttony disease um, were played out. God said, you know what? Man is, man is better for you. Now, to the experiences where they were led into places where there was uh, a scarcity of water, in my opinion, is Christ did this to to reveal their character to them and to to develop it, to develop a trust relationship with them, for, from them. 
Um, so I, I, I'm not seeing really, I'm not seeing a lot of parallels between the children of Israel's wilderness experience and the wicked at the time of the end. The wicked, wicked's minds have already made, been made up. The, their, their characters have already been set. The other part, though, is that the hardship that they're experiencing is is because, in a large part, of their own choices. Sure. Okay, and so where the intent of the children of Israel to Canaan was supposed to be a short trip, and we're there, and and uh, and things can progress forward quickly, because of their choices of disobedience, not and showing that their hearts were not truly. Uh, trusting of uh, the Heavenly Father and of his representative Moses, then uh, they, by their choice, um, created a situation for the wanderings. Okay, uh, it's a great point. Yeah, the, the, the spies were sent into Canaan, 12 spies. Two came back and said, yeah, we can do this. Ten said, yeah, they're, they're, pretty, they're big over there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we can do this. And that, that infected the... Uh, the rest of of the Israel. In fact, uh, if you read Patriarch's Prophets um, chapter on that, she says that if ten had come back with a good report and two had come back with a, a uh, an evil report, the children would have believed the two. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Well, the reason why I brought the children to uh, Israel's um, maybe maybe using the word food was a bad example because of what you just explained, but they were physically side by side through that experience. So they were physically side by side. Now, everything that they that was different was a mindset that they had and a spiritual experience they had with God because they reacted differently in those experiences. Some were happy with the manna, some didn't want it, but they both got the manna. So the reason why I'm bringing up that is because when you explain the difference between the people that experience um, uh, Christ experience when he experienced on the cross and the people experiencing those things at the end of time when you know, when they go through, you know, try to, you're trying to explain the argument. Every time you explain it, you're explaining their mindset. When Jesus went through something, you explain, you explain his mindset. Okay. Mindset. Oh, I see, oh, I see where you're going now. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Our, our perception and our, our, um, our teachable, our teachability our, and our mindset is, is absolutely critical. There's no, there's no question that, um, that um, the, the mindset of Christ on the cross and the mindset of the wicked in the end, and, and different groups within the children of Israel, their mindsets were almost polar opposite. So the, the one thing I'm not the one thing I'd like to hear from your argument, just to get the full understanding, is if you if you rest your argument based off of Christ's mindset and their mindset is using the example of why it's different, then I still don't understand if it is different. Their, their mindset is a reflection of their character. Right. But to say, the, to say that Jesus, what Jesus experienced wasn't what the wicked will experience, is it because of his mindset? Is it because of what he actually experienced, what he actually went through? So if it's what they actually go through, if that's the same, the only thing different is their mindset, that's something that, you know, we could, we could agree on, because that's the only part we discussed. Well, okay. The... The second death is defined by, um, as defined by Revelations, the lake of fire. It's an eternal death. Did Christ experience an eternal death? No. No. He was raised again. So. His body was not the same body. Um, he's going to, my, 
Well, my understanding is that he's going to have the same scars in his body uh, in heaven. Now, I, I wasn't there. I don't have a picture of him, so I, I don't know. I can't, I can't make that argument. Yeah, there were some who didn't recognize him. The, the other thing is, there's some things that are just a mystery. There's some things that God did not explain. I, I can't argue with that either. Point out that the whole Exodus was selfish. The people, Christ dying on the cross was selfless. Selfish, selfless. That's my two experiences. All right, we need to get back on point here. <clears throat> Does we're talking about Christ's mission? Does a um, does it make a difference which law lens we view his mission through? Of course it does. So the following are first two results from a Google search of Jesus' mission. Quote: So we have to ask ourselves: Do we have faith in that that the shed blood of Christ declares God's rightness? If so, how was God right in allowing his son who had done no sin to die? How was he right in raising him from the dead? Well, it was right Jesus died because he was of, quote, flesh. He bore sin-prone and mortal nature, parentheses, the diabolos, the source of human sin. Jesus' sacrifice declared that God was right to execute his judgment on man because of sin and because man bears this nature. However... It was also right that God raised him from the dead because he had overcome that nature and offered himself as a sacrifice. It was right God changed his flesh nature and gave him a spirit nature. It is this belief in, quote, righteousness of God, which is the mechanism for being acceptable before God. Now go be a witness. Thoughts? As you listen to these, there's there's truth mixed with error in here. So you have to be discerning. Did God actually raise Christ from the dead? Jesus said, I lay my life down and I I lay my life down and I take it up again. And I've, he's connected with the source of life. He can't help but live. He, he lived, that's right, he, he fully embodied the law of love, which is the law of life. The resurrection was inevitable. It was a result of living out uh, the law of love. Are you suggesting that Jesus raised himself or Christ raised Jesus? Another camera. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus couldn't raise himself. He laid aside the independent usage of his divinity according to Philippians 2. I think that Jesus in his human brain fully eradicated the nature of sin and selfishness. Okay, This is the job Adam was given to do. Adam failed miserably. And we're living the results of that now. Since Christ eradicated that propensity to save self, he fully embodied all of the law and all of the prophets and fully revealed God's law of love. And I believe he took his own life back up again. 
Again, this is kind of going into a, a mystery area, but uh, the best way I explain it is God's divinity did not die. God, Jesus, left his divinity in the trust and care of the, the Father, and the divinity called humanity back to life. I think he left his humanity in care of the Father. Well, what I'm saying when it was... As well. I'm not saying he didn't, but I'm saying the divinity part did not die, did not perish. It did not... So, that's the distinction I'm trying to make. Not that he didn't leave his... Not the other distinction. That you just, we both agree there. Okay. The best explanation I heard, but it's not real. That's something, again, that's a mystery. It doesn't explain it implicitly. He does say that I raised it back up, so we have to trust that. This is the second uh, second entry from uh, Jesus' mission. Many believers know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but we should also understand his mission, how he fulfilled it, and what it means to each of us. Christ had a twofold goal, twofold goal in coming to the earth as a baby to provide us with a tangible image of God is... Yes? Yeah. And to die in our place to pay the penalty for sin. Yes? I respectfully disagree. What an incredible plan. The omnipotent, omniscient Lord had existed since eternity past, and yet for a time he set aside power and strength that were rightfully his so he could become like us. Because God in human flesh lived his life before men, we can better understand our Heavenly Father. Yes? Absolutely. Through Christ's sacrifice, we are invited into an eternal relationship with God. You see, Scripture finds every descendant of Adam guilty, and the punishment for sin is death. Okay? Are we, are we guilty, or are we terminal? Okay, we are terminal. What did any of us do to incur guilt? I mean, which of you made a decision to be born, and to be born a sinner? Okay, and I like how they reference Romans 6.23 when they say, and the punishment for sin is death. Is that what Romans 6.23 says? The wages of sin is death. Sin pays its own wage. The cost. If you will, the cost. The penalty must be paid by the shedding of blood, referencing Leviticus 17.11. Yet, the Father can accept nothing less than a perfect sacrifice. Deuteronomy 17.1. The Savior, who is fully God, fully man, and 100% innocent, died a humiliating, excruciating death, excruciating death to pay the debt we couldn't afford. He is the only one who could lay down his life to save us and bridge the gap between each person and the Father. There's no possible way for us to earn our salvation. Correct. It's an awesome gift that the Father freely offers to each of us. Correct. The only condition is we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and follow him. Have you ex chosen to accept this amazing blessing from the Father's hand? The, the things that you kind of didn't agree with, can you explain that further so I can understand your point? Because I'm not sure what, what you're referring to. All right, let's take this second one. He came to earth to provide a tam tangible image of who God is. Okay, I believe that's fundamental part of Christ's mission was to reveal the character, nature, and government of heaven and his father and to embody the natural law of love okay and to die in our place to pay the penalty for sin okay that part of the sentence i don't agree with 
how do you understand that, or if you don't agree with what, what don't you agree with? It's coming from a legal mindset. It's coming from a penal substitution mindset. Okay, the author of this is is looking through a legal lens. That sin is a legal problem, and therefore, because God arbitrarily enacted some law that says sin is bad, I'm offended because of sin. Therefore, only my son's blood is going to assuage my wrath and keep me from killing these wretched humans. So, how do you understand that that paradigm? Your, what's your paradigm on the uh, the traditional belief? Why does God hate sin? There's the why does not okay. yeah. The the rhetorical question is why does God hate sin? Because it sears the heart of the one who sins. If we look at this in the context of if Christ's primary mission was to be able to reveal God's character of unselfish love and to live that in action among us, so that we could see what God's really like instead of the lies that have been been uh, told over the centuries. If we understand it in that context, then at the same time as he's revealing God's character of incredible and selfish love, it also reveals the destructive nature of the selfish heart and the destructive nature of what Satan is truly all about. And in that process, Christ choosing to allow Satan manifest his full character, that if you were to let sin go unbridled, and, and what would it do? Would it choose to still honor someone who has not, not um, given way to their own selfish needs at all? Or would it truly continue in a destructive path against that representative? And so as Christ is there living God's unselfish love, it also allows Satan to show that his vindictive, nasty self, if left to be able to do it, would kill Christ. And so, Tim, Ron, the part that uh, uh, I had not thought about before was uh, several months back when Tim had said, if Christ, if his only role was to die so that we might live, why then stop Christ from being killed as a baby? Because yeah. that would have fulfilled that aspect of he came, he died, we're done, let's go home. Blood's been shed. Exactly. Stamp of blood. It solely was blood to be shed. But because it was about so much more than that, it was re- it's the living the life of showing the character of seeing God in action that was the goal and mission. Right. The, he, the simple shedding of blood would not have met that, that deep need that we have. I've contrasted um, some of these law views. Maybe this will help clear some things up for you. Uh, In an imposed law view, Jesus came to pay the penalty for my sins, past, present, and future. A natural law view, Jesus came to take on my sinful nature, defeat the inherent selfishness in his human brain, and develop a cure for our terminal condition, and to offer the cure as a gift for all who will freely choose to cooperate with the cure. In other words, save us from our sin, not in our sin. Impose law of you. Jesus came to endure the Father's wrath. Natural law of you. Jesus came to reveal the Father's character of love, truth, and freedom, and to reveal what God's wrath really is, a letting go, a giving up. My God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Imposed law of you. Jesus came to shed his blood so I can use it as a whiteout on my heavenly records. And he can plead with his father to be merciful because I'm covered from that. I'm, I'm covered with that blood. In other words, to save us in our sin. Natural law of you. Jesus came to pour out his blood, which is symbolic of life. Because if he had used his divine power at any time to stop evil men from killing him, Satan's allegations would have been correct. Our heavenly records actually reveal healing interventions attempted, made, refused, and will correctly reveal our diagnosis of healed or terminal. Imposed law of you. Jesus came so his father could kill him. Natural law of you. Jesus came to exercise his free choice and lay down his life and to take it back up again. And there are many, many more. I, I just listed half a dozen. Thoughts? So when Elway says he's our substitute and our surety, how's that, how's that being referenced in the way you understand it? He came as a substitute in order to reveal what ultimately happens to reveal what happens when, when the source of life lets you go. You die. Okay? He substituted himself in that role so we could look at it and say, oh, this is what happens when God lets you go. I don't want to do that. I want to participate I want to participate in the in the healing remedy. And I see he's a substitute in the same way someone who takes on an infection in order to develop antibodies or a remedy for a cure and then donate it yeah. to others who are infected. Another way that I see it is revealing, again, revealing characters. Um, in one way that I looked at that and uh, it helped me was if we're again looking at that base character element and we're seeing the comparison between the character of selfishness versus the character of unselfish love, what if you had uh, this individual that was in a domestic uh, relationship and their, uh, the, the one that they were either married or dating was highly abusive, was narcissistic and all the rest, and, and your friend um, did not see that aspect of them and was continuing in the relationship? And the individual that's trying to help said, you know what, if you go back into that house one more time, they're going to kill you. And they're like, no, they won't. No, seriously. Let me go into the house instead, and you just see what their character's like. And if they're, if they're a kind, loving person, then I'll be back shortly, and there's not going to be a problem. However, if, if I'm right about their character, uh, hopefully this will save you, and you'll be able to see it. So Christ goes into the house instead to be able to reveal the true, just mean, nasty, selfish nature of Satan. And Satan demonstrates his evil self by just attacking Christ with all he had. So that we can then look at it and say, whoa, you were right. Uh, true selfish nature, if left, that's what it looks like. No, God, I don't want any part of that. You were so right. Good. I, I, I hadn't... I hadn't pondered that. We, we we want to make sure we don't get off on to moral influence theory here because that we, it's not just a matter of God revealing Satan's character and his and his own character and God's character. And we're, we're we see that and we say, oh, okay, I get it. 
there was more. Okay, the 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 ringing out that Hebrews tells us that he developed a perfect character through suffering. He developed it. This is why this is why he couldn't be beheaded as a child, as a, as an infant. You know, it's not just about blood being shed. It's about the the the, the battle, the constant battle of uh, in in his human bra- human brain to save self. Okay, none of us have ever been tempted to turn stones into bread. It's, it's not a, it's not an issue for me. Yes. Yet, if we think about the, the cosmic um, nature of this this battle between um, God and Satan, <clears throat> part of Jesus' life here was to demonstrate to the universe that all the things that Satan had accused um, God of were not true. That's right. Adam was the original uh, failed representative of God, and Jesus, as a substitute, came as the new Adam to show the universe that God God's law is love and truth. And, and you know to demonstrate to, to to prove really God's true nature and substitute part of this. And that that law could be kept. Satan had Satan had alleged that the law of love couldn't couldn't be kept. That, that so, so when Satan or when, when Ellen White refers to Jesus being our substitute, he was the substitute for Adam. Right. The universe that God's love God's law is love and it can be kept. He's the substitute for the human species. Right. right. All right. Now. Um, since we've jumped into that can of worms, we're going to open up another one. I'm going to skip to Thursday's lesson. This is the parable of the rich man Lazarus. This is uh, this is good times here. Now, in my notes, first of all, I want to encourage you, before you have a, a discussion about the rich man and Lazarus with uh, some other evangelical denomination, someone from another evangelical denomination, read chapter 21 in Christ's Optics Lessons. It's a must. I've included the entire chapter in the notes. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I am going to tick off some highlights here. When you hear the rich man Lazarus, what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Hell. <clears throat> Hell. Eternal torment, communication between heaven and hell, state of the dead. Is that the point of this parable? No. No, I don't believe it is. What was the um, what was the primary point of the of the parable? condemnation on the rich man the way he, his behavior towards those who are less fortunate okay it was an indictment on the rich man's character and the way he treated people anything else I think there's something more something bigger I think part of it, it illustrates the failure of works versus faith they were him the father of faith okay so it, it contrasts um Contrast faith uh, with works. Anything else? I think the primary point of this is to... Christ was trying not only to speak to the audience he was talking to, but he was also speaking to 
the nation uh, of Israel at the time, and he has a message for us in the final days. And I believe the, the, the real point of this parable is that we only have one life to develop a character. There, there are no second chances once, once we go to sleep. You have one chance to build a character. And the gulf between those who are saved and those who are lost cannot be bridged. This is from chapter 21. Conversation between Abraham and the once rich man is figurative. The lessons to be gathered from this is that every man is given sufficient light for the discharge of the duties required of him. Man's responsibilities are proportionate to his opportunities and privileges. God gives to everyone sufficient light and grace to do the work he has given him to do. If man fails to do that which is a little if man fails to do that which a little light shows to be his duty, greater light would only reveal unfaithfulness, neglect to improve the blessings given. Quote, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in that which is must, which is much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in the much. Those who refuse to be enlightened by Moses and the prophets and ask for some wonderful miracle to be performed would not be convinced even if their wish was granted. Thoughts? Yes, sir. What does it take to be saved? Like for somebody to experience salvation, what, what, what needs to happen? What does it take to be saved? In a nutshell, I think it takes being in harmony with the design protocols which life was created to operate. So, in other words, be in harmony with God's law of love. So like the thief on the cross, so that could be something that happens in an instant. As soon as you're in harmony, you start heading towards that. When, when does the balance, like, I'm just trying to... If you... Okay, I've struggled with this a lot, so don't feel like the Lone Ranger here. If you are diagnosed with exposure to anthrax, and you get accurately diagnosed, and the physician says... Here's a prescription for ciprofloxin, or Cipro, the, the antibiotic we know is Cipro, which is the, the drug of choice for treating anthrax. Go fill the prescription and start taking it. Once you fill that prescription, let me back up. If you trust the physician, and you go and fill the prescription, and you take that first tablet out of the bottle, pop it in your mouth, drink it down with some water, are you on the pathway to healing? Yes. Yes, you're on the pathway to healing, being healed from anthrax. If you continue the prescription to its end, will you be healed from anthrax? Yes. In theory? In theory, yes. Okay, bear with me here. Yes. If halfway through the prescription you get run over by a bus... Was did anthrax kill you? No. No. So you're still on the pathway to healing. Okay, the thief on the cross started that pathway to healing. Well, in fact, I want to suggest that he started it before. I don't think that that his encounter with Christ on the cross was the first time he'd ever heard of this guy. I want to suggest that he. The Holy Spirit had been working on his heart prior to him hanging beside Christ on the cross. Now, maybe the first time they'd met face to face, 
Yeah, but he knew he had done nothing wrong prior to He knew he was innocent. He had heard he had heard of Christ. The Holy Spirit had, had been working on his heart and, and opening up his heart for greater light. And he was thirsting for light. He started on that pathway to healing and took a big step that, that day on Calvary. He later suffocated. Was he on the pathway to eternal healing? Yes. Yes. Yes, but, well, I kind of like your uh, illustration there. And thinking about how to operate because of the, the mindset of works versus understanding what it's really about. If you're taking the Cipro and you've taken half the prescription, all of a sudden you're saying, you know what? I'm doing really good. I think I'm just great. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take the rest of it. Right. And uh, I-, I can handle this on my own. I've got it. Then... Is the healing going to continue? And then the other angle, from a Christian perspective of how a lot of people want to view it, is, well, wait a minute. They only took one pill? But, hey, I've taken the whole prescription. This is not fair. Yeah, Christ addressed that in a different parable. (laughs) The workers and their wages, those who agreed to work for a set sum of money at the beginning of the day and then... More work to be done, so the vineyard keeper goes out at noon, gives more workers, and he goes out toward the end of the shift and says, you're all being paid the same wage. And the ones who started early say, hey, whoa, wait a minute. So the question is, did you really do the work by taking the field? Or was the work done elsewhere? It was done elsewhere. And I don't have to know the biochemistry or the pathophysiology of how the antibiotic works on the anthrax uh, bacteria. I don't have to know that for me to get the benefit of it. I don't, know how, I don't have to know the mechanics and the physiology of how the Holy Spirit transforms my character to get the benefit of it. All I have to do is cooperate with the healing remedy that's provided. Yes, sir. I think in Matthew it says, He who endures to the angel. So I would just comment on that. But to finish, to add to what you said about his original question, how, how then you be saved... I think it's to believe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, just the general term "believe" is what we say. But I mean, it's to believe the truth about God. To go along with what you said, explain that. It has to go further than that, though. Well, in Second Thessalonians, it says they received, they failed to love the truth, and thus be saved. Yeah. Okay. James says that faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm. It. Let's go back to our anthrax example. You have a, a trusted family physician. He gives you the he gives you the antibiotics. You put them on your med, your shelf. And you say, "I really, really believe these are going to help me." And you stare at the bottle, and you just keep repeating, "These these these antibiotics are going to help me. I'm going to get better." Okay, without the faith being revealed in the works of taking the antibiotic, you're not your belief alone is not going to save you. Uh, the, the belief I was talking about is the belief that actually promotes you to action. Okay, good, good. I'm glad we cleared that up. I want to read another another passage from her uh, chapter 21 in Christ's Object Lessons with the referencing the uh, Lazarus and the um, rich man. When the voice of God awakes the dead, 
He will come from the grave with the same appetites and passions, the same likes and dislikes that he cherished when living. God works no miracle to recreate a man. I just lost my place. Who would not be recreated when he was granted every opportunity and provided with every faculty or facility, excuse me. During his lifetime, he took no delight in God, found no pleasure in his service. His character is not in harmony with God, and he would not be happy in the heavenly family. This is loaded stuff, folks. Today, there is a class in our world who are self-righteous. We touched on this earlier. They are not gluttons. They are not drunkards. They are not infidels. But they desire to live for themselves, not for God. He is not in their thoughts. Therefore, they are classed with the unbelievers. Were it possible for them to enter the gates of the city of God, they could have no right to the tree of life. For when God's commandments were laid before them with all their binding claims, they said no. They have not served God here, they, therefore they would not serve him hereafter. They could not live in his presence and would feel that any place was preferable to heaven. Amen. So it's actually in God's mercy and, and wisdom to allow, to let them go. Absolutely. To allow them the, to reap the benefits or, or effects of their decision. For him to force them to live in his presence would be hell for them. It would be categorical hell. And arbitrary. Yes, in the back, uh, the, from online. Commenting on the parable is saying uh, uh, good points on the awkward and misunderstood parable. God is not a sick and sore loser. We must see that the real mystery is why will the loss... Uh, persist on rejecting the only one who can give them life and one that would have been abundant. Well, very well said. Very well said. All right, we've got a couple minutes left. Let's go back to uh, Sunday's lesson. The lost sheep and the lost coin. In this class, we, we have advocated what, what Tim has referred to as the integrated evidence-based approach. And the three threads of evidence are Scripture, science, personal experience. Which of these three threads is referenced in the two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin? Personal experience. Experience. One could argue that the sheep was a, a, a reference to nature, but the audience he was speaking with, I think he was he was trying to, he chose the illustrations that would best reach the, the biggest audience, and he chose to, to use two illustrations that spoke to these folks' experience. Okay? Now, I've never tended a sheep herd, but I've lost some money. <laughs> and I've turned some rooms upside down looking for that money. So I can identify with one of these. But why why would he why would he choose that uh, thread? To speak to things that are precious. To speak to things we treasure. Okay. Those things were also points of relevance to them at that time. They were points of relevance to them at that time. I thought, hey, good. That's correct. If if Christ had gone on some deep scientific dissertation uh, about entropy and loss and, and coins being 
covered with rubbish, but mathematically being able to be calculated within chaos theory, would the audience have paid a whole lot of attention? No. Of course not. But they understood digging under a bed, trying to find a lost coin. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 194, uh, this, is a, this is a great insight, especially into that lost coin. The coin, though lying among dust and rubbish, is a piece of silver or gold still. Its owner seeks it because it is of value. So every soul, however degraded by sin, is in God's sight accounted precious. As the coin bears the image and the superscription of the reigning power, so man at his creation bore the image and superscription of God. And though now marred and dimmed through the influences of sin, the traces of this inscription remain on every soul. Amen. Amen is right. Human life was devalued, and we wanted them to understand how he viewed them. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. It should speak to us in our propensity to sit in judgment. Yes. Of others. That's right. Um, and our tendency to devalue others in, in an effort to, in our own minds, build ourselves up. Okay. This, this, both of these illustrations give an example of the of the value of a human soul. Mm-hmm. And in reference, Luke says in reference to the lost sheep, that all heaven rejoices when one one sinner is uh, brought back into the fold. When Christ leaves the 99 to go rescue the one, all heaven rejoices. Yes, sir, one final comment. Regarding the lost sheep, Ellen White, the Sour just says that one sheep represents the whole world. Mm -hmm. So the whole world in Christ has already been saved. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, if if you think about the universe being the, the 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 whole sheep herd. Earth is the one sheep that's lost. That's right. Humanity is the one species that's lost. Let's bow our heads and close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for going to incredible lengths to reveal your character of truth and love and freedom. Uh, and uh, we want to thank you for the revelation of your natural law and uh, the gift of the gift of love, the gift of Christ, the gift of the healing remedy that you offer to each of us. Um, we thank you for the evidence of your trustworthiness and we ask that you give us the strength to partake of the healing remedy so that we can have our characters transformed and we can hasten Christ's coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.